So the title of the Friday Night Dharma movie is The Power of Mind. So you'll see, hopefully, that we're in, in as user-friendly as way as we can, we're um, unpacking these foundations of mindfulness um, that... Um, the Buddha said that if you just practice even one of these foundations, full awakening is possible. And so we start with the body, um, uh, with Anishka's beautiful talk last night. And, and she also, towards the end of her talk, was also referring to states of mind and how the body and mind are connected. And so really these are, are a little bit artificial categories of our experience. Our experience is inherently integrated. So it's just for the purposes of exploring and, and strengthening these capacities of mindfulness that these, um, these categories that we, we unfold and, and gradually expand are offered in this way. So there was a recent article in the um, New York Times about meditation retreats like this, actually. And this guy writes, meditation retreats, at least at this place, are no picnic. You don't follow your bliss. You learn not to follow your bliss. You let your bliss follow you, and you learn this arduously. If at the end you feel like leaving Shangri-La, that's because the beginning felt like Guantanamo. (laughs) We spent five hours a day in sitting meditation, three and a half hours a day in walking meditation. By day three, I was feeling achy, tired, far from nirvana, and really, really sick of the place. I was sick of my uh, 8 a.m. yogi job. I was sick of the vegetarian food. And I wasn't particularly fond of all those Buddhists with those self-satisfied looks on their faces, walking (laughs) around serenely as if they knew something that I didn't know. (laughs) This is the New York Times. (laughs) What I hated above all was I wasn't succeeding as a meditator. You're not supposed to think of succeeding at meditating. You're not supposed to blame yourself for failing. And blah, blah, blah. That's not my commentary. That's what he wrote. And blah, blah, blah. So you're not alone. (laughs) Isn't that great? That it turns the mind of a writer of the New York Times into blah, blah, blah. Very quickly, whether we want to or not, we get to see how the mind works. There was a question that arose sometime during today of why do we do these retreats again? Why am I here? Isn't that interesting that all your needs are taken care of? I mean, this incredible place that is cleaner than my apartment. Food that is, that is more healthy than I've had at home. 
um, these incredible teachings and being held by uh, the retreat managers and the cooks in such a loving way. And for God's sakes, it's an all Donna retreat. And it's like, why are we here? Is the mind calm? Is it settled? Is it peaceful? And if it's not, what's that about? There is power in the mind. And that means that there is power in the untrained, unguarded mind that is usually driven by unconscious desires and thoughts. We are constantly pulled away from the incredible beauty and preciousness of the present moment because we push things away that we don't like, that are unpleasant, or we want more of the things that are. Even when we know the Buddha's invitation to us that living with mindfulness for 24 hours is more precious than living 100 years without it, even with that encouragement, we are still buffeted between these, um, these responses to unpleasant and pleasant feelings in our life. And in that way of pushing away unpleasant, wanting more of pleasant, we actually change the moment. We are not actually experiencing the direct energy of our life. All of that is a manipulation of our direct experience. It is what we think we should live. It is how we think we should live. It is a a concept or a thought that this moment would be better if it were this way. That, That this would make my practice more deep. That this would make my life worth living. And all of a sudden, we're living a thought and not actually our life. So the invitation of all of the, invita- of the instructions, of the teachings, is really to go beyond what we think we know of our lives, to explore the life that is being lived already without your intervention, to get out of the way, getting our minds out of the way. But it's really getting our unconscious minds out of the way so that the power of our aware mind to be free can live in it to its full potential. It's not about getting rid of thoughts and it's not getting rid of the mind, but it's directing the power of the mind to things that are beneficial. And what does that mean? That means what is going to lead to less suffering? What is going to lead to more happiness? what is going to lead to freedom. And we can do this because the Buddha said he would not teach things that we could not do. So we do this step by step. We notice the details of our experience, the moment to moment sensations of the breath starting with that neutral object. And and if the breath isn't neutral, then we find a touch point or a a physical place that we can rest the awareness. 
so that we can notice our life from that point. The power of the aware mind is to meet that moment for what it is. And as you just gently touch that moment, that gentleness is kindness. That's what Anishka was, was, was uh, beautifully describing last night, that, that these practices are so integrated. And why is paying attention so important to this aspect of loving kindness? Because paying attention is an integral part of our experience of love. So many of you have children. And even those of you who don't have children, we all have been children. And we know when a parent isn't paying attention, that child doesn't feel that bond, that affection, that love. Our ability to pay attention is deeply tied to our ability to love. And the more mindful attention that you give to your own experience, the more you are giving yourself a profound sense of self-love. It is where the power of your mind is meeting the power of love. You may not think this feels right, or this, this may not, you may not think that this makes sense, because it may not fit your concept of love. But you are actually loving yourself by accepting each and every moment that comes into your awareness with that tenderness. Paying attention to all of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. Because our usual conditioning is to pay attention to just to the joys. Because we don't want the sorrows. And when we do that, we are actually living only a portion of our life. We look for love in so many places outside of ourself, right? We look for we look for love in many of the wrong places in our life. And all we have to do is return to pay, paying attention to ourself. Because we cannot think our way into this practice. This is not, it, it may not be congruent with our thought of love, but we cannot think our way into this practice. And we've all had this experience, I think, that you have a thought, and it leads to another thought, and it leads to another thought, and all of a sudden, some life story has unfolded that you've written, you know, the novel or screenplay for in five minutes, ten minutes. So an example that has come up in some of the interviews is, is you know, an uncomfortable feeling arises. Or, or an unpleasant sensation in the meditation itself. And it's really hard to sustain the attention. You just don't think you can do it. And then you begin to, the judgment arises that, oh, I'm, 
I'm really lousy at this. I'm really lousy at this. This is a really lousy practice. It's not working. The teachers are not saying anything relevant to what I, I need to hear. Or even worse yet, this doesn't feel right. I'm not right. That something's wrong with me. How do you know you're not doing this practice just perfectly? Just the way that it is unfolding. Who is telling you that you are a good or a bad meditator? On the flip side, some of you have been coming here for many times and you have had those, those spacious experiences that, that seem um, tranquil and calm without the, the, the constant drum of, of the thinking mind. And there's this thought that I can do this. I can do this, in fact, because I don't know why they're teaching it this way, because it should be taught this way. <laughs> None of this, whether it's the story of, of being a bad meditator, failing at it, or the story of being a good meditator and, and being the expert, None of that is the present moment. It is the activity of mind, which is the capacity to elaborate and create these compelling stories. And it has a word in in Pali, in the in the uh, the language that was first used to write down the Buddha's teachings, and it's called papancha the proliferation of mind. And what interests me about this particular word is that it's over 3,000 years old. It predates, it predates um, uh, the Buddha's time. It predates written language because the Buddha's teachings was, was, was offered in oral tradition. That means it's been around for a long time. It is not personal. It is not about something wrong with us. This is the habit of the unconditioned mind. That the unaware mind allows thinking to feed itself, to feed our difficult emotions, to create that perpetual calendar of the things that you need to do. to write those novels that, that, that probably won't get published. But if you do, <laughs> offer some of the rights to <laughs> Spare Rock. <laughs> so there's this little cartoon of, it's actually a cartoon of two monks. Sorry, Bhante. <laughs> but, you know, two monks are meditating and uh, One monk turns to the other and says, are you not thinking about what I'm not thinking? (laughs) It's possible to think about not thinking, too. (laughs) This is how I think Anushka was referring to it, how crazy the mind is. It has no shame. It'll think about anything because the mind is supposed to think. Your skin feels, your ears hear, your eyes see, your tongue tastes, the mind just thinks. No judgment. 
but allowing the mind, where's my visual prop? Allowing the mind to settle so that we can see clearly into our life. We begin to observe the characteristic of the thinking mind as opposed to being caught and believing that the thoughts and the thinking mind are actually our life. So really the invitation is when the thinking mind is present, is it possible to drop the object of your thoughts and be with the thinking? And here we go back to the first foundation of mindfulness in the sense that be with it, embody how it feels like to think. Is, is the thought triggering physical sensations or emotions? Often we get lost in the storyline of the thought. You know, it's like this, this movie that's being uh, projected and, and it's so seductive that we get, we, we get lost in its reality. And really the invitation of awareness is to really examine what is causing the projectin. And it's as simple as turning and looking at the projector. Turning and turning the awareness to the quality of mind. Because if the mind is aware of its activity, it has a choice of which activities will lead to freedom. So Mahagosananda was a very famous, uh, well-known Cambodian Cambodian monastic who um, uh, in the late 60s and early 70s was training in Thailand. And um, with the rise of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, he got separated from his country and um, it's an incredibly moving story because his whole f- family, just like many families in Cambodia, got destroyed by the killing fields. And um, when he heard that, he was just devastated and, and uh, he went to his preceptor, the, his teacher, and uh, his teacher kept directing him to his practice because there was nothing in that moment that Mahakosananda could do to change anything that had just occurred in terms of the catastrophic um, the killings that were happening. And so his teacher kept redirecting him to the practice of mindfulness and loving kindness. And when the war began to subside, Mahakosananda went into the refugee camps and this was the first thing that he taught. He taught loving kindness. And he created the the peace walks on a yearly basis through the late 80s and the early 90s through the the fields of landmines in order to begin to unite his people together, both from the Khmer Rouge side as well as um, uh, uh, the... Uh, the regular folks. And so this is a quite of a, a famous passage that, that he wrote. The thought, 
manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit. The habit hardens into character. Character gives birth to your destiny. So watch your thoughts with care. Let them spring from love, born out of the respect for all beings. This is the importance of the power of mind, not just to change your life, but really to change the world around us. It is the path towards freedom. Because this proliferation of mind, this creating of story over and over again, this getting lost in the, um, in the, uh, in the proliferation of thoughts, that's, that's really the mind just being one big drama queen, right? It's just, it makes mountains out of molehills. It makes, it, um, uh, it just, there's thought when there's not even a reason to think. And the ability to look at the process of mind is what we're doing, what all of you are doing. So we begin to look at the recurring patterns of our thinking and beginning to get a deeper and deeper understanding and insight of how the mind is working. So I just wanted to offer some personal ways that I've worked with this um, this aspect of mind. And as I mentioned a little bit earlier, it's, it's simply about noticing patterns as opposed to getting caught in the story. So often, th- what I try to do is, is even before I... Um, notice the title of the story that's coming up is um, I think about, well, where is this, if this was a library, where would I put that book? And so I just notice the category of thinking that's beginning to arise, like, oh, this is the storyline of my family, or this is the storyline of of, uh, uh, my partner. Or this is the storyline of the conflict at work. And just noticing on that top level, before I get caught into the details of the drama, and I just file it in the library, and I go back to the breath. Just noticing, oh, acknowledging, not pushing away the, the ability to think, but noticing the quality of the thought. And also, again, remembering to drop into the body. How does it feel in the body and the heart? Noticing the patterns in the meditation. Again, I think I mentioned this earlier, that this is the gym that we're exercising really to be aware of the patterns in our life. So um, this past, these past couple of Mondays, I've been doing um, a community building class at East Bay Meditation Center. And 
Um, I had an exercise just this past Monday in which um, I had two people in dyads and we had a question. Those of you who know me know that I do these interactive exercises. So two people sat with a question for about 10 minutes. And then I combined two pairs of two. So they were a group of four and they processed the question for about 10 minutes. And then I had um, each group of four find another group of four to become a group of eight with another question to ask. The question is actually irrelevant. But um, so there was a lot of commotion and talking and noise and energy for the first. And as soon as it went to the group of eight, the energy of the room sort of got soft. You know, people got a little tentative because the group got a little larger. And one of the groups had a very interesting experience. They were two groups of four and they just turned to each other because they were sitting right next to each other and they became the circle of eight. And there was this edge like, like, no, you're wrong. We're right. And it, and finally someone noticed that it just felt like us and them that in the span of 20 minutes, the thinking mind, the pattern of the thinking mind was to create us and them, that the people that we feel comfortable with versus the people we don't feel comfortable with. And so what they did was they got up and they alternated, you know, group A, group B, group A, group B, and it changed the whole dynamic of the, of the conversation. Noticing the pattern of how our individual minds respond has an impact on how we collectively experience our life. Another technique is really not to take the drama queen so seriously. Not to take your thinking so seriously. We believe almost every single thought we have. Right? What is that about? Do you believe to the ex- that extent the thoughts of anybody else? <laughs> what gives us the, the authority that we are right with all the millions of thoughts that we have? So really, just treating it lightly, there's this other cartoon that, you know, these two kids are lying on the ground, sort of spacing out, and, and there are these clouds in the sky. And the cloud has a thought bubble. It said, oh, geez, they're totally staring at me. That makes me feel so self-conscious. They probably think I'm ugly. Do they think I'm ugly? Am I ugly? Let those thoughts float away just like the cloud. That you don't have to believe the thoughts that appear. That leads to the third uh, suggestion. And that is, if you really get caught in the tornado of, you know, a compelling story, just project it onto the person in front of you. (laughs) 
listen to the thoughts as if they were coming from that person. You don't believe them anyway. See how it lands. You people in the front row have the advantage of projecting it onto the teachers. So if you have this thinking mind, just just see what it would be like to have another person say those thoughts to you. And would you really take them that seriously? Part of the definition of thought in Western psychology is talking to ourselves, self-talk. And so the most important things we say in the world are what we say to ourselves. And are those messages supportive, beneficial, loving, and caring and compassionate? Or is there judgment, criticism, denial? There is a culture of the self-critic in, in, in our world, of self-judgment, that tells us that we're not good enough, that we're inadequate, that we're not smart enough, that we don't look good enough, that we don't belong, that we don't fit in. Mindfulness, the definition of sati, part of that definition is remembering, remembering the true nature of who you are and that we are so much more than who we think we are. I remind you of that Buddha Dasa quote that I read you. To rest until we can feel harmony with all of life and our proper place in the midst of all things. That that is the true nature of our life. So in the mid-90s, when, uh, I mean, Buddhism, the Dharma has been migrating into the West for quite a while, but in the mid-90s, a lot of the Western teachers met with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala, and uh, to just talk about the challenges of bringing the Dharma into the West. And um, I wasn't at that meeting, but I have heard that one of the uh, first core questions that came up is, how do you offer these teachings of freedom to a culture that has such low esteem, that, that, that the individuals um, have such a, a, um, uh, a pattern of judging and, and beating up on themselves? And so the translator translates that to His Holiness and then translates it again and then translates it again. And they spend time back and forth on this question because His Holiness didn't really understand what low self-esteem was because that doesn't appear so strongly in his culture. And he turns to the teachers and says, don't believe it, because it's just not true.
again, that quality of mindfulness is remembering. Remembering that the awareness of your thinking is not being lost in your thinking. You may be lost. You may be, you, the mind may have wandered from the breath or the body. But as soon as you realize that, that's a moment of waking up. That is the moment of awareness. That is an opportunity to appreciate, not an opportunity to judge like, oh, I wish I would have woken up 10 minutes ago. Appreciate it for what it is, which is a moment of freedom. This is the power of mindfulness. That we can't change anything we're not aware of. So as soon as we're aware of the mind wandering, we have a choice. Do we want to continue wandering or do we want to come back to the present moment? Do we want to come back to cultivating the capacity to dissolve greed, hatred, and delusion in our life. This is the choice of freedom. Usually, we are seduced by the freedom of choice, which is the freedom to do anything we want, wherever we want, with whom, whatever we want. That is actually not freedom. That is being buffeted by the pleasant and unpleasant situations that arise. Freedom is a choice. On um, uh, my first long retreat, um, I had this, I had these stories about um, my childhood, about uh, not ever fitting in as a gay man of color in many of the places that I um, walked in the world. And it was, um, it was just proliferating in my mind and what I need to do about it and what I need to you know, um, I was also sitting in a room that was primarily white. In fact, as I was the only person of color. And the proliferation of mind was, uh, I couldn't be with a breath at all. So I tried to create a, a ways of letting go. I was told that in retreat, there is no thought that is worth thinking. And I tried to do that, and I couldn't. So I felt that I needed support. So even though the encouragement is not to write, um, what I did was I took these small pieces of paper, and I just wrote down like a word of a thought. And when I went to my room, I literally let it go. I put it in the corner of the room. And I just tried to give myself permission to let go of the thought that, you know, if it was really an important thought, because sometimes we hold on to the thoughts because we think that they're so important we're going to forget. 
right? This is like, this is such an amazing insight. If I don't tell my partner, my parents, whatever it is, you know, so, so I would. I would write it down and I would let it go. And so see if that works for you. Just letting it go physically. And so at the end of the two-month retreat, I had about 80 pieces of paper in the corner of the room. And so during the retreat, don't, you know, don't go back to them. Don't reread them. Don't you know, rewrite them. Just let them go. But I do invite you to go back at the end of the retreat and look at the projector, what the projector produced. And go over the pieces of paper and see how many you really throw away. You might keep some because they are important, but how many do you actually completely let go of? It's a fascinating exercise. I can tell you my answer, but that's not important. It's what you go through. How does letting go really benefit our lives? So, um, last week, uh, 10 days ago, I got into a traffic accident. Um, And it sort of was disorienting. Um, And after I exchanged the information with the other person, uh, my poor little Prius was definitely impaired. So I hobbled it over to the Best Buy parking lot and I was at four o'clock in the afternoon and I was calling the insurance company, the tow company, and um, uh, the insurance company, oh, and the body shop, trying to arrange everything that needed to be arranged before the body shop closed at five. And it wasn't working because the tow truck was not, during rush hour, was not guaranteeing a pickup by five o'clock and the insurance company needed to know where it was going and I was just getting more and more panicked. And uh, in the rear view mirror, I saw a flatbed truck sort of go by once and then it went by again. And I said, what's that? And I turned around And on the, on the face of the truck, it says, Larry's towing. <laughs> and I'm on, the, on, I'm on the towing, I'm on the phone call to AAA to tow my car. And I said, I have to get off the phone. <laughs> so I get off the phone and I go out and out of the cab of Larry's towing, comes a Chinese man. <laughs> and I was like saying, I have to let this go. I have to let, I have to let everything go and just relax into what is happening because what is happening is so what I did not expect. <laughs> and apparently somewhere in the background, the, the, um, uh, the body shop had actually contacted this, this tow truck. And so he puts my Prius onto the flatbed truck because it's not drivable. And, um, 
I get into a cab, and he tells me uh, he emigrated from China in 1973, and the first place he lands is Philadelphia, where I grew up. And we begin talking about conversations I've never had about race relations in Philadelphia for 30 years. And it completely changed my experience of this, this disorienting accident. Just letting go of moment to moment and letting the life be lived as it's showing up. It was a gift because, you know, when people talk to me about the accident, I don't feel traumatized. So noticing the patterns, being curious about the patterns, maybe even rearranging the patterns, like those, that, those two groups of four that I described in the class. Trying not to take the thoughts so seriously. Imagining that those thoughts are coming in from, from somebody else. Remembering that awareness of thinking is not being lost in the thought. finding permission and ways to let the thoughts go. We continue to pay attention without judgment. And most of all, we learn to pay attention to our minds without judgment. Tongpulu Sayadaw, who is one of the Burmese teachers that, that uh, Bhante referred to on our first night, said that if you know it, if that means if you're mindful of it, it will break. If you don't know it, it will go round and round. If we know, if we are mindful of the pattern, it is the, it is the beginning of the antidote. So um, there was another recent article about how these mindfulness trainings are being given to people who are redeployed into Iraq. And the ostensible reason was to prevent post-traumatic stress. But actually there's a secondary benefit. So uh, one of the veterans um, of several of the deployment of these deployments that got the training said he was out at dinner uh, one night bef- um, and a customer at a nearby table said that he and his friends were being too loud and overly obnoxious. The sergeant said, at one time I would have thrown the guy out the window and gone for the jugular. But, by, but guided by these new techniques, I fought the temptation and decided to buy the man a drink. Later, the guy came over and apologized. This reconditioning, this this noticing the impulse and not needing to act on it is is this path towards liberation because it's, it's an incredibly evolved way of being in the world. 
to notice the impulse and not need to act on it. So a lot of the mindfulness um, teachings are beginning to go into the Oakland School District in various different ways. And so one story I I heard was this nine-year-old boy uh, in one of the Oakland schools came up to uh, his teacher and said, I just found out something. When I'm angry, I don't have to do anything about it. (laughs) That is amazing. Both the soldier and the boy had that transformational moment that doesn't just transform their life, but it transforms the life around them. When the soldier goes to a rock, he will be different than he was. When the boy goes home, he will be different. Having touched that place of realizing something that is much greater than who they thought they were. There was, um, you may have heard of the story of Victor Cardenas, who um, this was written about uh, in May. As a young Mexican-American high school student in Houston, Victor had the deck stacked against him. But he picked up a camera and crafted a haunting story. The tale he told was his own. We never had money. We never had food. My mother didn't care that she had four kids. It was knives, guns. It was people ending up in the hospital. It was my own family ending up in the hospital. She kicked out my brothers, she kicked me out, and I was on my own. I was 14 years old and homeless. So for many, too many nights, he bedded down as best he could on a park bench, a throwaway kid, ashamed and alone. He he explains, I guess I didn't want to say anything to anyone. This is where many stories end badly, but not this one not by a long shot. What happened next was a synthesis of Victor's instinct and an amazing social network. A buffer of high school friends offered this boy without a home, shelter and support in theirs. Their voices, their voices are throughout Victor's film. He wants to be something, something proud, something to be proud of, like to be, ha, I did this. Show me what I can do. I can do anything. He had the wisdom of a grown-up person when I met him, and he was 15. This past Thanksgiving, the shuffling between classmates' households came to a halt when Victor moved in with one of them. In a suburb of Houston, Texas, the Mexican street kid had found a home. Call it an investment of compassion that may very well break the bank. That's because these days, Victor is acing multiple advanced placement tests, mastering the Russian language, and earning national accolades for his film work. Next fall, 
He'll attend Texas A&M and study biochemistry on a full scholarship. This kid who not so long ago was reduced to sleeping in a park is the valedictorian of his high school. The principal says, when you catch a kid with dreams like that, we all want to be dream makers. Victor considers himself one of the luckiest people in the world. And he is lucky. He lives beyond anything that his upbringing told him about who he was. He didn't believe the box that people put him into. He didn't believe in his limitations or his fears. He is so much more than his circumstances. When we see clearly who we are, when we see through all of the thoughts, all of the turmoil in our life, we see the vision of who we are and who we can be. And it becomes clearer and clearer. Who we are is grander than any of our wildest imaginations. So the the invitation is to go beyond your expectations and your thoughts. Feel the landscape of your experience that is beyond your description. Invite yourself into the space of not knowing, not knowing what to do, not knowing where to do it, not knowing what you are, not knowing who you are. And in that not knowing, there is an infinite number of possibilities that can cascade into your experience. One last offering around the proliferation of thoughts. And that is to find the larger picture. When we have the space, we can hold anything. When we are caught in the claustrophobia of our own thoughts, we have very little space. When we are boxed into a corner that says, this is how life is, and there are no options, then there are no options. But it's just not true. Every life in this room and on this planet has the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And every moment has them. That is the expansive quality of not just your life, but life itself. This is not just your retreat. This is not just a retreat for communities of color. This is a retreat that has a revolutionary nature to it. It is about bringing the teachings of freedom into communities that have not had full access. It is representative of a cultural transition of the Dharma that has been ongoing for 2,600 years. It is relevant 
to every living human being. Because every living human being has the possibility of waking up. Each of you has a mind. Each of you has the power of that mind. And that means all of us are capable of experiencing the power of the aware mind to bring us to freedom. When you practice here and when you return to your communities, you will be like spokes radiating out from this hub that touches all beings, both within your reach and beyond. That is what Thich Nhat Hanh refers to when he calls the ground of our being, this hub. I end with his quote around this ground of being. If you're a victim of discrimination, then your way to emancipation is not simply by crying out against injustice. Injustice cannot be repaired by recognition alone, but by your capacity to touch the ground of your being. Discrimination, intolerance, and suppression stem from a lack of knowledge and a lack of understanding. If you are capable of touching the ground of your being, you can be released from the suffering that has been created in you through discrimination and oppression. Once you have touched the depth and the nature of your ground of being, you'll be equipped with a kind of understanding that can give rise to compassion and tolerance, and you will be capable of forgiving even those who discriminate against you. Don't believe that relief or justice will come through society alone. True emancipation lies in your capacity to look deeply When you break through to the truth, compassion springs up like a stream of water. Don't wait for things to change around you. Practice liberation now. Then you will be equipped with the power of compassion and understanding, the only kind of power that can help transform an environment filled with injustice and discrimination. You have to become such a person, one who can embody tolerance, understanding, and compassion. You transform yourself into an instrument of social change and for change in the collective consciousness of all of humanity. That is the possibility of our individual and our collective freedom. The Buddha said he would not teach that which we could not do. That freedom is possible. just allowing the words to fade as the bell rings and fades. Allowing the vibration to have its course in time, 
coming back into the sensations of the body. And if there are thoughts or emotions, simply being aware, not needing to judge or have an opinion, allowing the awareness to rest once again in the silence. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.